I'm David Matson, and this is Primetime 89, a chance for me to visit and talk story, check in and catch up with classmates from a generation ago, finding out how they're doing, where they are, how they got there, and what experiences they've had along the way. I've known Todd Osvirk since we were five. What I remember best is his imagination and creativity and his incredible talent drawing. That's why I wasn't very surprised to hear that he applied his creativity as an author of comic books and a writer, producer, and director of film. He's an award-winning director and a freelance writer living in Los Angeles. We reconnected after 30 years at a class reunion where I barely recognized him with his anchor goatee and shoulder-length hair. (laughs) So, L.A., how long have you been living in L.A.? Oh man, 30 years, right after high school. Uh, it's where the business is, you know, that, that's, that's the main reason. But by now, yes, my life is here and uh, I like it here. Yeah, you know, um, you know, it's, you know, here, you know, there's poke restaurants all over the place. It's not real poke, you know, it's the, the, the mainland or Howley version of poke. Still good, not authentic, but I would have to say that the, actually the, the poke from Costco is pretty close to like, poke you would get in, in back home in Hawaii. So once in a while, I do I do get that. Would I rather move back to Hawaii? Sure, absolutely. One day, definitely. My wife certainly is not a huge fan of LA, and she'd rather move to either Hawaii or Japan. And I'm definitely open to that. It's just I got to get to a certain level before I can before I can do that. I understand your wife's from Japan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how did, Tokyo. How did you two meet? My friend was, uh, at the time, going out with her friend. My friend had told me, like, oh, yeah, you know, the girl that he was dating. Like, she's got some friend she brings around. So that's how we knew this group of people. I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll be able to meet her. And when I saw her, I thought, I hope that's the girl he was talking about that, uh, you know, and she was. So, <laughs> And so I sat next to her. We just hit it off there. And the rest is history, pretty much. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Kailua, always been a Kailua boy. In Enchanted Lake, mostly. I used to hang out with uh, Hikili Schumann a lot in, uh, when we were really small. And he lived out in Waimanalo. And then he, eventually he moved over to Enchanted Lake, actually just down the street from me. So back in those days, definitely ride a bike, walk wherever you want. You know, I don't need parental supervision or maybe me and my sister go to the movies, you know, in Kailua town and, you know, walk there and walk back. And so it's no problem at all. The good old days. My dad is from uh, Pittsburgh and my mom is from Baltimore. So they met in Hawaii. They did. They met in Hawaii. Yeah. Uh, for my dad, it was the military. He was in the army and uh, he requested to get stationed in Hawaii. And then my mom was a nurse. She was there, I think after nursing school. Growing up, I would never do anything to upset them. I always tried to be the good boy. And so, you know, that's kind of how I saw them in that sense. You know, like uh, I wasn't a rebel or anything like that. Family was important. You know, they always made sure that we as a family unit were were close. And so, you know, I, I didn't stray too far from the path or anything. Discipline, principled. That's how I I tried to be. I was a a real goody two-shoes probably, you know, back then. So growing up, was it just you and your sister? Yeah, and she's uh, seven years older than me. 
did she go to Kamehameha also, or? She's not Hawaiian because, um, you know, I'm adopted. I have Caucasian parents, but she went to uh, St. Francis. Uh, we were very close, very close. Um, and she also was like, um, you know, somebody who, and she passed away last year, which is oh, unfortunate. I'm so sorry. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It was uh, a few months before the reunion, actually. She had a host of uh, health issues, and it was just like this perfect storm of stuff that all happened at once. You know, she's been through a lot, and she's survived a lot. So to me, it was, oh, yeah, it's just another thing. She'll, she'll get through it. She'll be fine. Sure. And then uh, when the calls came in, my mom said, you know, you should come back and see her. I said, okay. So I flew back, and then I'm glad I saw her because uh, it was literally the next day that she passed from some heart complications. Mm, okay. Well, that, that's that's definitely tough. But being able to see her before she passed, that is special. It was. And I remember uh, I was I got to the airport, mm-hmm. and I got my in my rental car, and I was pulling out to go to, go to the hospital up at Kaiser. Uh, and then... Um, you know, there's lines, uh, lyrics in the song. I think of my sister whenever I hear that song. So as soon as I was pulling out, that song played on the radio. And then I, I actually, I started crying because uh, it, on one hand, I felt like, oh, man, my sister. But then it, I also felt like uh, it was like a sign that something was not quite right, too. And unfortunately, that's that's what happened. But uh, like so, a, a bittersweet hearing that song at that moment. To have that kind of trigger for, for bringing back those memories, I think that's, that's you know, really special. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. After it happened, because I had already flown back a couple times, I, I was like, I don't know if I should still go to the reunion. But I decided even more so, like, I need to go to the reunion because it's, I don't know, you know, like it just felt like something that I should go to and experience. And, uh, you know, maybe it would, I would get something out of it. And you know, we've already talked about this, but that reunion was just amazing. You know, it was, uh, it kind of changed things for me. Was your sister the biological daughter of your parents? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And she was born in Hawaii. Or how old were you when you were adopted? Uh, a few weeks, a few weeks old. How old were you when you first realized that, that you were, you know, adopted? Pretty young. I can't remember exactly what age, but maybe five, somewhere around there. I'm not sure. Now, interestingly, you know, my sister, born in Hawaii, so she kind of had darker skin. Um, and, you know, like even my dad, being out in the sun all the time, he just had dark, you know, he's sun, sun, suntan. Um, and my sister had a little bit darker skin than them. So if if you look at her and I, oh yeah, brother and sister, sure. You know, that's 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 kind of believable. That's believable. When you see my me and my parents like, oh yeah, they're they're clearly Caucasian, right? And so looking at my parents, I think the question was when I first asked my mom was, you know, how come we're not same same in our skin color? And then that's when she explained to me the whole adoption process and, and where I fit. You know, and they, they, they did a great job of uh, making sure that I felt loved and included in the family. Mm-hmm. So even though we didn't necessarily look alike as far as our skin tone, you know, not once did I ever feel like I was not part of the family. 
my dad is Slovenian and my grandparents immigrated from Slovenia actually and my mom is a mix of German French and I think she has a, a little bit of Native American Indian Sioux Indian too it's tough enough being a kid without having to explain to curious classmates that you're adopted and what that means that's why it was a secret he kept with those closest to him you know you're saying that you're Parents, you know, did a great job making sure that you knew that you were an included part of the family. And what were some of the challenges that you might have, you know, had growing up being adopted? It was mainly uh, questions that uh, kids would ask me. Oh, who's your real parents? You know, I hated that because then psychologically it would make me question they're not my real parents and I don't belong to this family. You know, like. That's not a place that I would want to go, especially as a kid. You know, and, and again, they don't they don't mean anything by that question. It's just, you know, a young kid. Oh, they don't look alike. So where's your real parents? Or who who are they? Do you know who they are? And so whenever anybody would ask that, I would just point to the parents and say, "There, that's my real parents." And then they would go, "No, that's not what I mean." You know, like who's your who's your real parents? And then so I would um, try to avoid that question as much as possible. So. It's not like I was ashamed of my parents or anything, but, you know, the less they were seen by other kids, then the more I could avoid getting that question. That's the main thing that was challenging for me was having to address that kind of stuff. You know, and now that I'm older, I have no problem answering that question as long as it's not coming from the other person uh, from a, a spiteful type of place. The older you get, you're able to put it all into perspective. Sometimes that's the best way to learn, though. Doing a lot of soul searching, you know, it comes down to abandonment issues, which is natural for anybody who has been put up for adoption. And so that was something that for me, I, I feel like I'm very self-aware, you know, and, I, and growing up, I had zero confidence. I was a uh, pretty shy, you know, low self-esteem. And it's just because of all these underlying emotional and psychological issues growing up. And then uh, as an adult, you know, I try to address those things and come to terms with stuff like that. And so, yeah, you know, finding my, my birth mother uh, or, or attempting to was the last piece of that little puzzle that kind of helped me see who I was. Finding your birth parents. Do I want to find my birth mom? How would I feel if I did? You know, how did your parents feel about you having interest in finding your birth parents? Yeah, that was uh, something that I struggled with for years, like uh, growing up. At first, uh, you know, I didn't want to know. I didn't care. But then as I got older, then I felt like, ah, you know, I'm kind of interested to see where I came from. You know, who am I? Um, and that wasn't until I was well into my 20s. And it was more important for me growing up in Hawaii to find who who was Hawaiian. Where did my Hawaiian heritage come from? Because, uh, you know, my parents... Um, it was important for them for me to connect with that. That's why they sent me to Kamehameha schools and I was fortunate enough to get in, you know, kindergarten. So eventually I did ask them, you know, I wanted to make sure that they were okay. Is it okay if I try to look for my birth parents? And they were totally open to that. You know, they expected it in some respects, I'm sure. My dad is, he's just really, or he was really open-minded about pretty much everything. Uh, my mom, I was a little bit more concerned about, but she also got behind the idea. And she's the one that really 
helped me and took the reins in finding out. Back then, we didn't really have stuff like uh, genetic tests or 23andMe and that kind of thing. We had to go the old school way, which was hiring a, a private investigator to look into and open up the old birth records. And it happened real quick. I mean, it was real easy. So once we started that process, I had some paperwork to fill out. And um, this guy, turns out he knew uh, one of my aunts. And then in, I'd say less than two weeks, I got the phone call that he had found her. So from the time you hired the private investigator to the time that he's calling you back and saying, yeah, I found her, two weeks? Yes, yeah. Wow. Somewhat. I mean, you know, I think I just got lucky. You know, some people, it takes a little bit longer. And, you know, I was always, uh, before I even embarked on this, I told myself, you know, if she doesn't want to meet me, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that because you never know how other people are going to react. And I've heard horror stories, too, about people who have tried to look for their birth parents and then they don't want to meet them. And so I had to make peace with that first, because if I didn't and that's what happened, then that would be extremely painful. So whether or not um, she wanted to meet me, it doesn't matter. I'm making the effort. That's what was important. Uh, and she was. She was waiting for me to find her at some point. Being a party to adoption is very emotional, whether you're the parent, the birth parent, or the child. Let's listen to Todd as he shares his emotional journey with us. Your mom sounds like she was incredibly supportive of this and, and even helpful in the process of getting the ball rolling. Absolutely. Absolutely. That changed once I, once I found my birth mother, because then she went through, and both of them did, they both went through this emotional, psychological thing where, you know, like, oh, am I losing my son? And so I got these two moms who are going through this um, processing all of this information. And it's, you know, it's an emotional and psychological thing that's tough for them. And then I Literally, I'm listening to two different phone calls where they're just crying on the phone. And in the meantime, you know, I'm dealing with this, too. I'm, I also have to process it for myself and figure out where, where I stand. And it, it, uh, it was the toughest thing I've ever been through because it just uh, it challenged who, who I was. It made me think about who are you and, you know, am I really who I think I am? You know, like uh, just, just questions like that. And it was tough, but I, I managed to navigate it all through it all. I um, thought that I might um, have a nervous breakdown. I thought that I might need some some therapy after going through all of this, but I didn't. And I, I wanted to make sure I went through it on my own to deal with it on my own, and I did. And I had uh, I had goals as as far as where I wanted things to be, and I made sure I met all those goals. And so. It's been uh, 20 years since it happened, and so definitely at this point, you know, things are, things are fine. Things are exactly where I want them to be. You know, I have great relationships with, with both, both families, and so, you know, it was tough, but it was worth it. Yeah, yeah to, have, to have two moms that just love you that much, and what were some of the things that you did to kind of help? put them at ease, I guess. Yeah, it was uh, mainly just me being a therapist for both of them. Yeah. <laughs> that was that was pretty much it. That, that's what I have to do. And I, I spent a lot of time, you know, uh, looking at myself, many years, soul searching, trying to figure out 
how, why do I do this? Why do I think that? What are my issues here? And why, why are they issues? And so I think asking myself a lot of those kinds of questions and understanding what makes me tick and operate. And I'm always interested in what makes other people tick too. Why do they, does does this person do that? Is it because of the way they grew up or why do they have these beliefs? Why do they think that? And so asking those kinds of questions, I was able to apply it to them as well. Over time, you know, things settle down. They're able to process and accept the position that they're in. I, I can't imagine, you know, being in that in the situation that you were in, I'm thinking, what was one of your the challenge that you worked through with them? Um, just making them understand that I am a son to both of them. They questioned, "Am I their son?" You know, respectively. Um, so, like my birth mother, you know, she understood she's my mom, but she can't be the mom like a traditional mom because she hasn't been there for at the time I was 20, 29, I think 28. Um, I was almost 30 when, when, it, when I, and I wanted to do it before I turned 30. Um, but um, so yes, she was not, she was absent for 30 years. Right. So there's no way I could look at her or consider her to be a mom in the way that my adoptive mom is because she's the one that raised me. You know, she's, I do definitely see her as a mom, but it's a different, it's different. So she had to accept that and then understand that I am still her son, just not in the way she maybe thought or hoped. Initially, I was hoping we could be one big happy family. But then when I started going through this stuff, I realized, nah, that's going to take some time for that to happen. It's pretty heavy. It was a pretty heavy thing to have to go through. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't even imagine, you know, having having that, you know, because I'm sure you love you love them both. That's just real deep. You were saying you've got a great relationship with your biological mom, your birth mom, right now on that side of the family. Yes, I think we have a good relationship for sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Were you able to meet anyone else in the family? Oh, yeah. Yeah. My grandparents, they had all passed. But um, when I first met my uh, found out about my birth mother, she ended up coming to stay with me for for two weeks. She stayed with me and it was uh, it was a great experience. Um, It was was different, you know, and even when it was when it was over, I was talking to to my dad and he said, wow, do you do you realize what you just went through? You know, meaning that it was a profound thing. And, you know, I didn't think like, oh, you know, I don't know who this person is, you know, like maybe that's not the best idea. Maybe she should stay in a hotel or maybe it shouldn't be two weeks. Maybe it should be just like two days. But uh, she wanted to do that and I was fine with it. And my parents were fine with it. And I'm used to being in a small family. And then suddenly I'm thrown into this huge family. How do I deal with all these people? And then to them, it's like. It's funny because it's like, oh, you're you're Kehau, who was my birth mother's thing. Oh, you're Kehau's kid. Oh, okay. You know, it's like no big deal. Oh, yeah, nice to meet you. Welcome to the family. And it was just, it was interesting. It was just, I don't know. I don't know really how to, how I could describe that. But it was just like, wow, it's family. You know, and family has always, for me, been instilled from as long as I can remember how important family is. So yeah, it extends to my, you know, my biological family as well. It's, for me, it's a sense of belonging, you know, comfort for sure. And uh, for and finally seeing people that 
that look like me. Like I can look at my birth mother and say, oh, now I see where I came from. It was a strange feeling, but it's something that I think I, I probably needed, you know. So was reconnecting with that side, filling something that was missing in your life? It definitely answered some questions that I had and was looking for. And at the same time, it enhanced my life. But certainly now I can look back and say, yeah, for sure. You know, it's tough. Glad I did it. I've grown as a person. I understand myself even more now. And so, yeah, it was uh, both of those things. Thanks for sharing the adoption and, and um, you know, navigating through that and everything. No problem. Um, you know, if somebody's interested, I'm willing to talk about it. Several years ago, a friend of mine asked me to participate in this. Um, it was a seminar for uh, parents who were getting ready to adopt kids. So they got a panel together of uh, adoptees, including myself. And she she asked me if I would participate. And I was I was more than happy to. And so, you know, everybody has a different experience. I was very lucky to have a, a, um, a positive experience. What's one or two bits of advice you would be important to share with with somebody in your situation or parents looking to to adopt children themselves? For somebody who is considering looking for birth parents, I would say if it's a need that you you need to fill, you should certainly take the steps to do it. However, just like I did, you should be ready for any answer. So like if they don't want to meet you, you have to be prepared for that. You have to accept that before you even go through it. Because uh, like one of the panelists, he didn't accept that. He didn't, you know, like he expected his, uh, I think it was his birth mother to want to meet him and be with him. And she did not. So he was bitter about it. And he took it personally, which I understand for your own sanity, you have to be open to whatever the outcome may be and accept any answer. Um for, for parents, I would say, who's looking to adopt somebody, just make them feel loved and that they're part of the family and that tough questions are going to come up. And so when they do, just be ready to explain to that child where they fit and that they're still always going to be part of the family because that's what my parents did. And, um, and, and never did I question that was not part of the family. And I felt like I had a great childhood. There's, I would not change anything. You know, I would not. You know, it, was, it was great. What are some of the more meaningful things we've kept with us from high school? There were the friendships and how we've grown and matured with them, the mementos that are tangible links to the past, or that teacher who left a lasting impression on us. How do you think people remember you from high school? Uh, I saw myself as the wallflower who you know, at the school dances, standing on the wall, holding it up. And then um, I blend into the background and, you know, nobody notices me. Is there anything that you've collected or kept from high school? I got a lot of stuff from high school. In fact, I could walk into my old bedroom back home and it hasn't changed since I left in 30 years. Uh, my mom always tells me, like, when are you going to clean this up and get rid of some of this stuff? I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I will eventually. But, you know, I do have my old drill team jacket, uh, my old band jacket and you know, stuff like that. I got all my old man, uh, annuals. Do you have all 13 annuals since kindergarten? I do. When uh, the band went on its European tour, 
you know, I still have all my mementos from, from Europe that are all back home. Oh, that is so cool. So who from high school, if anyone, do you still you know, regularly keep in touch with? I keep in touch with Uwe Nahuina. And then there were, there were others. So certainly after I left high school and came here, there was a, a good amount of, of people I stayed in touch with. If you could have one of your former teachers be the teacher of, say, a niece or nephew, who would that be and why? But I'm going to settle with Miss Evans from fifth and sixth grade. I pick her because she helped me realize my potential as a writer, because that's what I've always wanted to do ever since since kindergarten. You know, I, I loved creative stories and you know, creative writing. That was my favorite stuff. And, and drawing and art and making figures with clay. You know, I loved all of that. Um, but writing was really, that was really the thing. Like since I was a, a kid, I've always wanted to be a novelist. That's what I wanted to do first. And then when I realized, oh, somebody has to write movies. So then that's when I thought, oh, sh- that's exactly what I want to do is, is write films. And I remember fifth grade, I wrote this science fiction story. It was called Invasion from Saturn. And then she actually called my parents because she thought my dad helped me write that story. She, she, she couldn't believe that a fifth grader could write something like that. My dad told her he did it all himself. And since then, uh, from that point on, for the next two years, while I had her as a teacher, she was always encouraging me. And, and, and I was so grateful for that. I've always wanted to reach out to her, you know, just to say thank you. What is it about horror movies that's so fascinating? that some even have a cult-like following. Well, Todd was a big fan of horror movies all his life, and he explains to us where his interest began. I attribute my um, love of films, especially horror films, uh, to my sister and also my dad and my mom. But that's because, you know, I'm not allowed to see certain films at a certain age. But of course, mom and dad are out. My sister and I would put it on TV, of course, and she'd take me to all the monster movies and horror movies at Kailua Theater, or uh, we would go down to King Street to the theaters there and watch Godzilla and stuff like that. And I I think it mainly comes from growing up in Hawaii, where there's a lot of ghost stories and superstition and urban legends and stuff like that, which always fascinated me. I would always go to the library in elementary school and check out all the books. I used to be interested in UFOs and Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot. My interest in supernatural type weird stuff, and uh, and I've always wanted to write, so I always found myself writing that kind of material. How cool would it have been to have an uncle who makes horror movies? Todd shares his passion for writing as a mentor of sorts to the next generation in his family, and he encourages them and their creative writing. My daughter. Catherine has an interest in screenwriting, and so she was excited to have a chance to talk with Todd and ask about writing and directing. Hi, Uncle Todd. Thank you for letting me interview you about your work. Why do you like horror movies? What What is it about? Um, I, I've liked horror films ever since I was a kid. You know, I'd watch a movie. I didn't really consider how it was made. But then, you know, when you watch a movie, there's credits. Eventually, I started looking at those credits and paying attention to that. Oh, who made this movie? Oh, this person made that movie. And so 
that's maybe how I started making the connection that a movie is not just a movie. A movie has a director, it has a writer, you know, it has a producer, it has all these people that are involved with making it. I focused mainly on who were the directors of these movies. And so as a kid, I would, uh, I had my list of favorite directors and, um, those are the people that really inspired me to want to do that. And then uh, when I found out there, I could actually go to college and learn about that type of stuff. Well, then I knew for sure that that's exactly what I wanted to do. So the college you went to was USC? University of Southern California. I loved my experience at USC. I did not get into the film school right away. I was a creative, major, a creative writing major for a few years first. It's tough. It's competitive at SC and especially in the writing program, because they only allow 24 kids a year, I thought, maybe it's too late, you know, because I'm supposed to graduate next year. You know, I can't just keep going, you know, keep trying to do this. I got to grow up and do something and, and get a job. And, you know, some hopefully that's in the field that I want somehow. I don't know. I gave it one last shot to apply to the film school, and I got in. And then I talked with my dad and my mom, like, SC is an expensive school. I would have to do four more years of school. And they said, okay, well, if this is what you really want to do, um, then go for it. And I was lucky to have parents that would support me like that because I do know friends um, who also went to film school and their parents did not support them at all. You know, they, they look at creative endeavors as not a real job. And then I got into the screenwriting program at the film school. And that's a four-year program. So I was actually there for seven years altogether. It was great, especially once I got into film school. It was I had so much fun. It was just um, it was a, a, an awesome experience. So I was wondering how the directing process is. Sometimes people are the writer, director, producer, editor. You know, they wear many hats. The director is the one who has the creative vision for the movie. And they're the ones that basically everybody else works to bring that vision to life. It's a, it's a collaborative effort, that's for sure. But um, the director is the one that has the vision for the film. I graduated in 96. Two of my classmates were getting ready to do an independent film. And then they remembered me. So they asked me to participate. And of course, you know, I, I said yes. Oh, the film is called Kolobos, yeah, which is a Greek word that means mutilated. So we made that film when we were still in our, our mid-20s and shot it. We spent 2007 writing it and developing it and securing the financing. And it happened pretty quick, so we were very lucky to get this film made. So uh, we shot it in 1998. I was hearing the music in Kolobos. Do you hire someone to compose it? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. You hire a composer. See, every every stage of a film is it's pretty complicated. So writing the script is one thing. But, you know, that's only the beginning. And then, you know, you got to hire all the crew, find the locations. And then that's and then you get into pre-production, which means you're getting ready to shoot and prep for the shoot. And then you get to the actual production where you shoot everything. And then once that's done. It's still not over because then you got post-production. And then that includes color timing, editing, sound design, and yes, the composers. In 1999, it finally came out on uh, DVD, and it did quite well. 
the measure of a success in a directed video movie at the time was how much shelf space it has at the video store. So when I walked into my local Hollywood video, when it finally came out, I was like, oh man, we got a whole shelf. This is great. If you were a hardcore horror fan, you saw it and you knew about it. They won a few awards at a film festival a couple years later. Um, because I went direct to, to DVD, I wanted to see it on a big screen. And, you know, we shot the movie in 35 millimeter film and then it won a couple of awards. And, uh, you know, 20 years later, it uh, has now got a special edition re-release through Arrow Films. And they take cult films from the past and then they do these special treatments to them. And uh, that was kind of like the culmination of the life of Call of Us. One of my goals when I was a kid was to, oh man, I want to make a film that's going to become a cult film for horror fans. And that's exactly what happened with Call of Us. What's gratifying is uh, when I hear somebody say, oh man, it, it also makes me feel super old. But they'll tell me, I saw Call of Us when I was a kid. It scared the crap out of me. We won awards for best makeup, best picture, and best directing. So, you know, I would have to share those credits, of course. You know, it's a team effort. And even for the directing, you know, me and my directing partner, we both earned that award. What would you say that your favorite part of directing is? Uh, my favorite part is it's the whole process in general. I like, I love being on the set of my own film. It's a great feeling. I also love sitting next to the editor and watching the film get put together too. It's a, you know, so each stage is a different piece of the movie coming together. And it's the whole process. Then the best part is when you're all done and then you see the movie and then you see all the work you put into it. Actually, yes, that's probably the best part is seeing all of it, all, all the work, not of just what you did, but what of what everybody did as a, you know, as a team. That's actually the best part. Yes. Seeing the finished product. Uh, the creative stuff is writing and, and directing. That's what I enjoy because that's what I've done the most. I would like to direct some stuff that I write, but I'd be satisfied with just writing too. And I would also be satisfied with directing somebody else's stuff if I could relate to it. There's a film that I have in post-production right now called Bashira. It's a horror movie. It's, it's in post-production right now, but I spent the summer of uh, 2018 downtown Buffalo. I wrote it. I was a script writer. My friend is the director. So I was able to be there through the whole process of the production of the film. If there was advice you were to give to your younger self about pursuing your dreams and stuff, what would that be? Keep doing it. Don't lose focus and don't give up. I would tell that to anybody who has a dream, you know, just. Uh, there are a lot of things that I didn't know, like about the different roles that it takes into making a movie. Thank you. Yeah, you're very welcome. <laughs> the horror genre is your forte. So yeah. what I thought I'd do is test your expertise. Okay, so you're going to make me, you're going to force me to think right now then. I'm going to force you to think just a little bit. Okay. All right. What I'm going to do, I've got subgenres and a brief description about each. I'm okay. going to read the description and then... We'll see if, if you can recognize the genre, okay? <laughs> so that would be perfect. First one, 
This subgenre deliberately focuses on graphic portrayals of gore and graphic violence. Torture porn. <laughs> I'm not done. <laughs> Good. Um, these films, usually through the use of special effects, display a fascination with the vulnerability of the human body and the theatricality of its mutilation. So this this is also the the sound that a bug makes when it hits your windshield. Splatter, like a splatter film. That's that's what uh, what I got. Some of that could also be applied to body horror, which is a movie like. Um, do you remember The Fly with Jeff yeah. Goldblum? You yeah. know, it's like the transformation, the graphic transformation of the human body through special effects, mostly. This next one is the part of horror that feels the most real since it features the work of humans, either that have become crazy or that are stranded in exceptional situations, or most of their horror around psychological tension. To me, like a, a, a psychological film is just psychological horror, like psycho, you know. Uh, exactly. A killer often masked that murders his victims with some kind of blade. That's probably a slasher film. Slasher, that's right. <laughs> the next one has extended graphic murder sequences and bizarre storylines, often featuring gratuitous sex and violence. That would be Giallo. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Which Got means it. yellow, which means yellow, which is the books you're referring to. Yeah. And in fact, uh, Colobus is a homage to those types of films. Very good. What a great guy. It was such an interesting story to tell. In the hours we spent talking, I got to know him a lot better, and I'm glad that I had the chance. You know, and ageism is definitely a thing in Hollywood, too. So how can I turn that into something for the next 25 years? By that point, I'll be 75. You know, like, you know, I, I still got some projects I'm working on. I just need to be able to keep riding the wave, you know, like from one thing to the next to make sure I can maintain and still, you know, sustain a career for, for the next 20 years or so. How do you feel about turning 50? Oh, man. Man, 50. You're old, man. And I remember when my dad was 50 and I, I was in college. And so, if we were loading up my luggage into the car, he's in his 50s. Oh, I better get that for you, Dad. You know, you're, you're too old and you're too weak. Let me, let me get that for you, which is not really true. And, and now that, that I'm approaching that age, you know, I don't feel – it's weird. I, I'm old. I don't necessarily feel that old. Like, I think maybe psychologically I have to catch up with it more, you know, like – you're 50, man. <laughs> Certainly, I cannot do stuff that I was doing when I was in my 20s. And was, forget that. Yeah, I think I've given up on trying to relive glory years, you know. For the last 30 years, on and off, I've taken different stuff over the years. If not in the dojo, then uh, I certainly just like lifting weights or going to the gym and just doing, you know, just a regular general type of uh, type of work. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, at our age, it's even more important that we stay active and, and fit and everything. Like, <laughs> If only we could be like Jamie Barboza. If only we could be like <laughs> Barboza. Yeah, well, awesome. It was great talking to you. Oh, man, I, I really enjoyed it. And thank you for 
reaching out and in, including me in uh, Primetime 89. And uh, Buffalo was a great city to film in. Um, and if I'm ever there again, you know, I, I will definitely uh, get in touch with you. Take care, brother. I hope you enjoy this episode of Primetime 89. I'd like to thank our guest, Todd Osver, for taking the time to talk story with us. I'd also like to thank everyone who helped put this together. Jamie Barboza and Nicole Yoshimitsu, Sean Maskell, Wendy Brown, and Kaylee Aquaro. And a special thank you to Dwayne Andres for the music. And Elizabeth Matson with production and editing. I'm your host, David Matson. Be sure to subscribe to get the latest updates and news on upcoming episodes. And join us again with another classmate on Primetime 89.